Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. Hi, Chloe. Hi. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. So I'm very excited to have you here because the pelvic floor world in relation to pregnancy and motherhood is so huge and and relevant and it's not something that I've tapped into yet on the podcast. So when I was connected with you, I knew that this was the perfect opportunity to kind of enter into the world of pregnancy, postpartum, prenatal health. Obviously, you're a midwife, so you work with all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm really happy to have you here. Can you tell us how you got started in, in this career and what a midwife is for those who don't know? Yeah. And I'm very new to this also because obviously I haven't had a baby yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the great thing about midwives is that we can take care of folks, whether you're pregnant and planning to give birth or if you're just having regular GYN checkups. Um, so there are a couple different kinds of midwives. And that's actually something that I wanted to <laughs> add to the list of questions is the type different types of midwives. But keep going want me to go over it now (laughs) okay yeah introduce yourself and then i think second go over what the different types are um so i am a certified nurse midwife Mm -hmm. and i work in a small private practice in new york city uh, where we mostly do um prenatal care birth and postpartum care we do a little bit of regular gyn stuff problem visits annual visits stuff like that um and then separately from that i do um a lot of work in another practice where i um i do at home intrauterine inseminations mostly for the queer and trans community i also do um gender affirming hormone therapy for trans folks and a lot of fertility work this is i had no idea that a midwife can do all of these things and maybe not all of them can but you can and the type of midwife that you are can and I think that's so fascinating and uh as I we talked about briefly when I walked in I think that we need to do another episode where you get into all of that because it's really interesting I would love to it's my (laughs) one of my favorite things to talk about I mean the thing about midwives that's so awesome is that we have a really amazing background in nursing and we work as essentially well certified nurse midwives essentially are nurse practitioners so we can prescribe we can do procedures we can um, diagnose and work as independent providers so Mm -hmm. we're not working under a doctor or or reporting back to a doctor or anything like that so we're able to really go into whatever um, aspect of 
reproductive and gynecological care makes sense mm -hmm. for us and that is so many different things this might be a very stupid question um can you explain a little bit about what like what's the what differs in training from a midwife and a gynecologist so let me talk about the different kinds okay. of midwives there are essentially three kinds of midwives um, in the United States and there are so there are certified nurse midwives sorry wait I want to interrupt you I also want to thank you for doing this because I want everyone listening to have a mental image that you're 39 weeks pregnant so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> gigantically pregnant sweaty in the summer happy to be here thank to do you. this um anyways a great way to not think about my due date perfect i'm happy to help <laughs> um I, so, okay, so three kinds of midwives in the United States, more or less. There are um, folks who are considered lay midwives, mm -hmm. um, and they, they practice without any kind of regulation or training. Um, they are pretty much illegal throughout the United States, at least. There's no um, uh, legal protections for them. There are certified professional midwives, and those are folks who go to a midwifery program that's usually about three years long. It just focuses on midwifery. There's no other um, medical background. And it, it, um, most of them will, will take a certifying um, exam at the end and pass boards, but they're not functioning in within the medical system necessarily they're mostly working outside of it in birth centers and at home birth mm -hmm. um, in certain states they are more recognized than in others for example in new york state where we are right now they are essentially illegal mm -hmm. um, and then there are certified nurse midwives and certified nurse midwives are um nurses who become registered nurses and then go to a master's degree in midwifery um, and that's usually about a two-year degree and that focuses on midwifery so pregnancy birth um, postpartum and also gynecological care um, there's also sort of doing the same work as certified nurse midwives but outside of nursing are mm -hmm. certified midwives just to make it more complicated um, <laughs> and certified midwives are only recognized in about five states right now I believe uh, New York being one of them and they offer all of the same services as a certified nurse midwife they simply don't do a nursing um, degree first mm -hmm. so CNMs and CMs are able to work in hospitals birth centers home birth um, and like I said earlier, prescribe, diagnose, do procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and the scope of practice is, is pretty fluid. So some folks will get certifications, for example, in, um, in supporting OBs who are doing cesarean births. And so they may be doing surgery. Uh, other folks will be doing ultrasounds or things like I do, the fertility, the, the um, gender-affirming hormone care, that sort of stuff. And that's all not within the 
direct midwifery scope of practice, but there are a lot of different directions you can go. And can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this field and how you got started in this field? I don't have a very good story. That's okay. Um, (laughs) I had a friend in high school who was a doula Mm -hmm. so a support person for labor and birth and uh, she would just talk about birth all the time and I found it pretty interesting Um, I felt this sort of deep desire to become um, more involved in birth work and so I I became a doula myself Mm -hmm. uh, in college Um, But it wasn't really until I became a midwife that I realized just how perfect of a practice it is for me. It's a way to be hands-on and make tangible difference in someone's life on a daily basis. Um, It's deeply radical and feminist and a really wonderful way to connect with other folks. Mm -hmm. So I... I really love it as a job. Um, and a really like, cool job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what what other job do you have where you can, you know, bring life into the world in the morning and then that afternoon help someone prevent pregnancy and know that you've completely changed both of those people's lives? It's amazing. It's so much fun. Can you explain what the difference is between a midwife and a doula? Yeah, so a doula is a person who offers informational, educational, and physical um, support for folks who are, most often, folks who are in labor and birth. Um, They do what's essentially a weekend-long intensive course um, in order to be able to do what what they do versus a midwife who is doing three to five years of school and becoming um, an actual medical provider. Doulas and midwives work really well together and we love each other. Um, We rely on each other a lot, but the thing is that in within the birth itself, the midwife is thinking about um, the medical aspect more Mm -hmm. and the doulas really just being there as an emotional support Mm -hmm. and why would someone choose to have a midwife over an OBGYN or would someone have both or is that not how it works you are only going to have one provider Mm -hmm. at your birth Mm -hmm. most of the time Um, some practices have both OBs and midwives in their practice um my practice is just three midwives uh we have good relationships with ob's in Mm -hmm. case we need to talk to them or get their advice on something a little bit more complex but we we don't need to discuss anything with them Um, and our patients don't need to see an ob if everything is healthy and straightforward and normal Mm um the There are a lot of differences, little differences between OBs and midwives. Um, But the main one is that obstetricians are surgeons and they have been trained in high-risk pregnancy. And midwives have been trained in low-risk pregnancy, Mm -hmm. low intervention, Mm -hmm. normal physiologic birth. And that is a really different way of looking at 
a person. We work a lot more holistically than most OBs are able to, not because they're bad people, but just because of the way the system is shaped. Um, we spend a lot more time with our clients more, most of the time. Um, so our routine initial visit is an hour long, mm -hmm. whereas with a lot of OBs, it may be max 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then they're seeing folks for 10 to 15 minutes for all of their return visits, whereas we're seeing people for at least 30 minutes, um, sometimes longer. So that's a really nice way to get to know someone a little bit better throughout the course of their pregnancy. And, um, and we can help them to think more holistically about themselves. We're able to talk a lot more about nutrition and exercise and um, other things going on in their lives so as to really support them in having the kind of birth that they're looking for. We also have really good training in supporting folks through unmedicated births, which is a lot of times what people come for. Um, the beauty of being a midwife who works in a hospital is that I can support someone through an unmedicated birth, and then if there's ever a point at which they change their mind, or I think that it might help them to change mm -hmm. their mind. We have epidurals at our fingertips and that doesn't change my role in the birth at all. We call the anesthesiologist in to do, to place the epidural and then I continue to be the primary provider and support them through their birth. Do not all midwives work in hospitals, like deliver in hospitals? No, some of them will work in, um, in birth centers uh -huh. or at home. Why? do you specifically work in, in a hospital? I think that's really interesting and cool. Yeah, there's, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, a lot I of love, There are a lot of yeah. reasons, and I love, I've worked in birth centers, and I've um, attended as a support person in homes, not mm -hmm. as a provider, um, and I love home birth, and I love birth center birth, and currently in the state of New York, there's really not a lot of options mm. for folks who are giving birth. My desire right now is to be in a place where the most people can access my care and that's in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I also really love being able to, to, <laughs> well, this makes me sound controlling and mm. I am. <laughs> I'm selfish and bossy and controlling and I don't want anyone to take over care of my clients. Mm -hmm. So in the case that one of my clients has an emergency or needs to be induced or has a health complication, I can still continue to provide their care throughout the course of their pregnancy and birth. Whereas if I were a home birth midwife and I needed to induce my, my client, I would have to transfer them to a stranger right. um, and have to let them, let this other obstetrician or midwife take control and, and I want to be able to provide them with this safe space that I've promised them and, yeah. and I wouldn't be able to do that. Oh, I think also that makes so much sense because even if I was just, if I'm thinking about like myself, for example, I think it would be amazing to work with a midwife, but then there's also an element of safety and security in being in a hospital where you have access to whatever you may need if, if the opportunity or the problem presented itself. Like you're in that space, but you, you're there taking care of everything. 
Yeah, and the the thing about and and I'll have to put my plug in here for mm-hmm. home birth is that home birth is very safe. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's more and more research coming out to say that it's as safe if not in certain circumstances safer than hospital birth. Um and that's really for specifically low risk uh patients who are um being attended by a well-trained provider. Mm-hmm. Um but the the important thing for birth is that you're in a place where you feel safe mm-hmm. and for most people that's in the hospital. So I wouldn't ever want to force or encourage someone to have a home birth if that's not where they're going to feel safest. There are really almost no situations in which even though it seems like there are in the movies, there's really almost no situations in which people have to like leap into action quick put in an IV do a surgery you know there's an emergency that almost never happens in birth even though it seems like it um and so in situations that you need that extra level of care there's almost always the time to transfer to a hospital and the truth is that if you were in a hospital you're not necessarily going to get that care any faster but that's a whole other conversation to have. This is so interesting. Like, I need to talk about this stuff more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, this is kind of random, and then we can go back to some of the more organized questions that I have. But I want to ask you this before I forget, because I was reading something that you wrote online last night, and it stood out to me because... The first gynecologist that I saw three years ago who diagnosed me with pelvic flu I mean, I had been to a bunch of gynecologists and none of them were able to. And for most people listening, I think that I talk a lot about my experience with pelvic pain and vulvodynia. And so this, my grandmother had a lot of these issues. And so her gynecologist, she was alive at the time and she said, you have to see my gynecologist. I went to her and she diagnosed me with vulvodynia and pelvic floor dysfunction and sent me to a pelvic floor physical therapist. And so she would always talk about how um, none, I think maybe, essentially none of the patients that she delivered baby, like none of the, what's, well, I'm not phrasing this properly. None of the deliveries that she did, did she do an episiotomy. And she would explain to me because a lot of her patients had vulvodynia and she I guess was like very careful that her patients were very sensitive and she didn't want to like she was she was an amazing 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 uh what's it what's the right word why am I blanking out delivery at delivering babies yeah yeah great obstetrician obstetrician yeah she was really like very very like gentle anyways so I saw that you wrote that you essentially have never done an episiotomy like because you don't have to can you talk about like why episiotomies are so common in in more typical births did i word this right yeah absolutely <laughs> i'm trying to think of the best way to answer that it's a really multi-layered it was so interesting yeah. because like from what i know and i and you're obviously much more of an expert than i am i think that most women get episiotomies it's just like the standard if you're giving birth in a hospital i'm trying to think most recently there was some information that came out i think it's something like 
I'm totally making this up, 20%. Okay. Um, But that's way higher than it should be. Right. Um, An episiotomy is essentially a cut normally done with scissors Uh to the vaginal opening as the baby is coming out in order to speed the delivery of the baby. Um, I have personally done one and a half episiotomies in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I in relation to the amount of births that you've assisted, which is, or right, handled, which, which is, is... 450-ish. Right. I don't remember. Yeah, just to put it into like context. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And um, I've been in practice for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was because my client had a was was a victim of female genital mutilation and because of right, that I read I, I read this yeah <laughs> the opening of her vagina was was really uh small and also very scarred um and she would have eventually pushed her baby through but it would have probably been harmful tearing um and so I just did a really tiny little cut down at the bottom that was able to release the pressure in just a way that she was able to give birth to her baby with no problem. Um, the other time was when someone had had an episiotomy with their first birth and there was so much thick scar tissue that again, um, it wasn't able to tear where she needed to tear. Um, and the reason why I say it was only half of an episiotomy is because I tried to do it and um, the scissors <laughs> To be graphic, the scissors weren't sharp enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I essentially just placed a lot of pressure in one area uh, with with the scissor in order to allow that area to give. Now, the reason why people do episiotomies now most often is because they believe that an episiotomy will make a more controlled tear. Um, and about 30% of people giving birth are going to tear one way or the other. Um, and they want to be able to repair it really nicely. So it is true that it is much easier to repair an episiotomy because it's one nice clean slice. However, what we've discovered is that they don't actually help prevent worse tearing. Um, and you're going to heal better if you tear in the areas where the tissue is weakest. With an episiotomy, we don't know where the tissue is weakest, so if we just cut straight through, we're probably cutting through healthy, strong tissue. Um, the, there's one instance in which, um, an episiotomy is probably, uh, an important emergency tool to have and that's where the baby's heart rate is dropping and even though the parent would be able to push that baby out within you know 10 15 more minutes of pushing the baby doesn't have that much time and so in that scenario doing an episiotomy makes sense in order to get baby out right then um but that's really uncommon Mm -hmm. most babies can get out sooner Um, However, this is an instance in which we see a difference between midwives and obstetricians because obstetricians are trained in high-risk birth, and so they are expecting things to go wrong. We're a lot more comfortable with things that don't necessarily look perfect, so we're a lot more comfortable with 
changing heart rates for the baby and different patterns of progression of pushing. Um, our, uh, our spectrum of normal, our range of normal is a lot wider. Um, wow. And so, for example, I may feel a lot more comfortable with a dropping heart rate because I know that that baby's going to come out and be healthy and be safe Whereas someone who with less experience in, in this kind of hands-off birth could be really scared for the safety of that baby. And so it's not that they're bad people for doing episiotomies. It's not that they're, you know, just trying to get home and get to the ball game or whatever. It's, it's truly that they're worried for the safety of the baby. Um, and that's when they begin intervening more. This all makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> and do episiotomies and, well, these are kind of two separate questions, but episiotomies first and then secondly, tearing. Do these have, do these separate instances have an effect on the pelvic floor and, and what happens to the pelvic floor after giving birth or after labor and then vice versa? If you, if someone were to go to pelvic floor physical therapy before, you know, in the weeks leading up to delivery, is their chance of tearing less? Um, yes and no. Uh-huh. So uh, an episiotomy and a, a second degree tear or more. So there mm-hmm. are four degrees of tearing, first through fourth. Uh, fourth goes all the way through the vaginal canal into the anus and a first is just a little skin parting essentially Um, so with that you're unlikely to have much effect to the muscles but with a second degree or more and an episiotomy is almost always a second degree or more um, you are going to have involvement of the pelvic floor muscles Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's cutting through or tearing through those muscles and in that scenario there's going to be scar tissue and healing that needs to happen and that will absolutely affect the general pelvic floor health and that's when a pelvic floor physical therapist comes in super handy. There's not much to do to prevent tearing. Um, The main things that we have research on are that we have, that we are able to um, prevent tearing by using different specific positions and types of pushing. Um, Laying flat on your back with your knees pulled up to your ears, which is the lithotomy position. That's the classic one that you see in all the movies that most people give birth in that position because they're instructed to. Um, That position puts a lot of tension on the the perineum, um, making it much more likely to tear. So why is it such a common it position? It is very easy for the practitioner to access the vagina. Got it. So that is entirely practitioner-based. Um, now, of course, occasionally, you know, you're exhausted and you've been pushing and you just want to lie down and you lie down and great, you give, your, give birth to your baby that way. That's fine. However, um, a lot of people, if left up to their own devices, are going to push standing, hands and knees, squatting, um, or lying on their side. Um, 
Squatting is also also can put a lot of tension on the perineum and so that one you do see more tearing as well. Um, but hands and knees and side lying are really much better for preventing tearing. Also pushing slowly and the provider helping to really slowly guide the head out are two really good ways to prevent uh, tearing. Um, and then also we have some research to say that using a warm washcloth on the perineum can decrease the rates of third and fourth degree tears. However, it doesn't seem to have an effect on first and second degree tears. So that's about it. You work with pelvic floor physical therapists, I believe. I, I don't have any in my practice, but I refer people refer, to right, all right. the time. Uh-huh. And can you talk about some of the cases where you find it to be helpful? Yeah. Um, in particular, I mean, the thing about pregnancy, everybody talks about, you know, maybe you'll, you should just have a C-section to protect your vagina. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that that's not really going to help. Um, this, the harmful effects to the pelvic floor of pregnancy are caused by pregnancy. They're not caused by the birth itself. Of course, there are certain things that happen during birth. If you have a provider who um, uses outdated methods of, of delivery that, that put extra unnecessary strain on the pelvic floor, that can be, um, that can worsen the situation, but you're gonna have strain to your pelvic floor um, whether you are having a cesarean or a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. Um, and that strain mostly um, ends up causing urinary or fecal incontinence, some kind of a prolapse, some kind of weakening of those muscles. And that is a beautiful time for pelvic floor physical therapists. If I could wave my magic wand, I would <laughs> give everybody a pelvic floor physical therapist to see postpartum. We think of pelvic floor health as being uh, strength mm -hmm. and rigidity, mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily the case, and I don't know if you've talked about this in other episodes, but there's really a combination of needing to be able to have really strong muscles that can hold everything in place, but also they need to be able to stretch and give, especially during birth when a baby needs to come through right. there. Um, and they, it, so with a pelvic floor physical therapist, you're going to be getting any of the important exercises that you need um, to both strengthen and stretch. And we, we talk a lot in birth about people who have um, a pelvic floor of steel, which is great for them in many situations. Um, most often these are runners, horseback riders, um, sometimes gymnasts, uh, intense athletes, but then they may find themselves pushing and pushing and pushing for three, four, five hours um, because they're not able to relax those muscles mm. in the way that will allow the baby out. Um, and that that's something that you can work with a physical therapist on ahead of time, and that can really, really help. Why do you think that all postpartum people should be doing pelvic floor exercises, you know, regardless of how they give birth, since pelvic floor conditions 
are created or worsen by pregnancy, not birth. And you touched upon this a little bit also, but... Yeah, well, the thing is that your body is changing in absolutely baffling ways throughout the course of pregnancy. Um, And not only is that growing a gigantic uterus and passing a baby through your pelvic floor, um, through your pelvis, uh, but it's also the fact that throughout pregnancy, your body is full of relaxin, which is a hormone that does exactly what it sounds like. It relaxes everything. in fact, even softens your bones so that the baby can fit out. But that means that all your ligaments and tendons and muscles and everything in your body is having a harder time holding its uh, position Mm -hmm. um, and doing its job. And so that can contribute to a lot of the pain that pregnant people have later on in in their pregnancy, the low back pain, the hip pain, etc. And then afterwards, as everything tries to go back to normal it's pretty uncommon for the pelvis to really fit back to how it was before on its own without some kind of TLC Um, and so we talk all the time about these like normal mommy woes such as always peeing when you laugh and that's not necessary right and not good um, and it shouldn't be normal if everybody was seeing pelvic floor physical therapists, uh, then ideally that would happen a lot less. And in fact, in other countries, we see that those countries that have a good pelvic floor health program for postpartum, that it happens much, much less often. Um, The other thing is that the diastasis separation um, is basically what happens during pregnancy. Your abdominal muscles separate right down the middle because they just can't stretch to fit over a 10-month pregnant baby Um, and that will not always come back together again on its own Um, and there's a direct correlation between weakness in the core and the abdomen and the pelvic floor Um, and so you're gonna see that a lot of pelvic floor physical therapists are working also on Um, the abdomen and the strength of the core and that can decrease all sorts of issues including like lifetime back pain that a lot of folks will experience postpartum and this is kind of a transition into more about your career as a midwife specifically but I thought it would be interesting to ask what are some birthing trends or patterns that you've witnessed throughout your career as a midwife? I don't know if that's an interesting question to answer or... There are a lot of different Mm -hmm. trends and things that you'll discover as you work your way into deeper into the birth world. Um, There's there's stuff like the hypnobirthing um, methods of of birth where in during hypnobirthing you will essentially put yourself into a trance um hypnotize yourself and then when it comes to the pushing and birth of the baby you're supposed to quote 
breathe the baby down. Um, and so it's almost entirely passive and you're not doing the purple faced pushing that happens and you see in all the movies of, you know, chanting mm -hmm. to 10, everybody shouting and pushing with all of your might. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that to begin with, but um, with hypnobirthing, you're completely foregoing that pretty much and just uh, listening to your body. That works really well for some people and less well for others. There's a lot of different things that can come into play in that moment, but it's an interesting trend. Um, another thing is, I mean, and a lot of these things are not necessarily new. Mm -hmm. They just come in and out of focus. Right. Um, because all of this stuff is ancient. Birth is ancient and there have been so many different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but as you start to listen to the birth community, you'll find for a little while it becomes really popular for everybody to talk about um, the different positions that you can squat in. For example, someone was recently bringing up that they see more tearing when people are squatting with their feet turned out versus feet parallel. I don't know, mm -hmm. but um, that's something that comes up and then all of a sudden you'll see midwives encouraging folks to push in different, you know, to squat in different positions. Um, or for example, it's become a lot more prevalent now for midwives to talk about um, different exercises that can stretch and relax and open the pelvis um, either in pregnancy or in early or active labor, um, such as a sideline release. Um, and, and those are things that, you know, five years ago, maybe no one was talking about, even if people were doing. Mm -hmm. um, what's it like being there as a human enters the world? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely amazing mm -hmm. and bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, it's the weirdest and most beautiful thing in the world. Um, and when I say beautiful, I don't mean actually, like, pretty. Right. It's certainly not pretty. <laughs> there is blood and there is poop and there is amniotic fluid and everything you can really hope for. <laughs> but there's, there's just such awe and strength in watching someone bring their own child into the world and there's a moment of surrender that happens often and seeing that person surrender to the force of this incredible experience and do check into their body and and tap into whatever innate understanding they have of birth um, and what their body is asking them to do is just jaw-dropping. It's the most amazing thing. I love being able to see that happen. Um, and also there's this really special moment of maybe I'm checking someone to confirm that they're fully dilated or to answer a question that they have about what's going on or maybe I'm 
helping them to to push with more strength in a certain direction and so I've placed my fingers inside of their vagina and when I do that when I'm checking someone's cervix I'm touching the baby's head um, and so I may be touching the baby's head and feel the baby just move their head back and forth a little bit sh sort of shake their head nod and I'm having this intimate moment with this person that doesn't exist yet um, and it's just me and them in that moment of course their parent is also noticing that and, and part of that experience but it's really tender and a connection that I have to those babies that I love being able to have and then all of a sudden there's a third person in the room <laughs> is there something that you feel is important that you are mindful of throughout the process in order to make it a safe and loving entry for this baby into the world? Absolutely. Um, I am, as a midwife, I'm constantly tracking everything that's happening in the room. Um, and in particular, as a midwife in the hospital, I'm very aware of any politics that are happening outside of the room and I'm trying to keep the room as peaceful and as free of uh, nurse, OB, staff, midwife politics as possible. Um, I'm keeping an eye on all the other people in the room. You know, sometimes you think that you'd really love to have your mother-in-law with you and it turns out that you <laughs> don't uh, want them there. And so then in that scenario, I'm I'm guarding that space for that person in labor and I'm maybe making up a lie here and there to say, oh, you know what, in this situation we just can't have extra people in the room, you'll have to leave, or whatever this, whatever is going on. Um, but really what I'm focusing on is true informed consent. Um, and informed consent means a lot of different things to different people, but to me it means remembering that I'm not the person in labor. I, you know, that person has been in their body for however many years, 16, 20, 30 years, 45 years, and they know what is best for them and they know what is best for their body. They may not have the entire body of knowledge that I have, but what I can do is act as a guide in that moment and give them the information that is useful and give them the information that I know that they need in order to make that decision, but I will never make the decisions for them. Um, that may be a decision about whether or not they use pain medication, or it may just be a decision about whether or not they stand up, mm -hmm. you know, and, but I will always give them the resources they need in order to make that decision. Uh, there's a phrase from, maybe it's Virginia Henderson, I'm not sure, uh, one of the big nursing um, nursing people who said that the point of nursing is to treat your patient uh, with the tenderness and the love and the intuitiveness as if they were treating themselves if they had the information that you have. And so that, I bring that with me always. I want to give them everything they need in order to make the right decisions for themselves. And that really follows through to people feeling empowered 
and maybe not making the decisions that I would make, but knowing that no matter what decision they make, I'm there Mm -hmm. and I'm going to support them. Um, And that makes such a big difference in people feeling strong and empowered and able to push their baby out that I think the babies feel it if we're going to get really crunchy. Mm-hmm. Um, the babies feel it and, and everybody in the room feels it. And it, there's, there is the, the phrase, peace on earth begins with birth. And I don't know how real that oh, I is. I love that, yeah. But it's, I, I see that people who have traumatic births are less able to be present for their babies. Um, and that can have potentially lifelong effects. Mm-hmm. Um, they make their way through and they parent in the ways that they can but if we were able to avoid that kind of trauma on a much more uh, on a much higher level we would have such a different culture right now I don't I'm like so (laughs) I'm like literally I could listen to you talk about this for hours Um, something that I think a lot of women who are listening who may be pregnant or planning on becoming pregnant um, and thinking about about giving birth is, well, the question I have for you is what are some of the most common fears and insecurities that you see with women giving birth? That's probably a very the broad, yeah. Really, it's yeah. the unknown. It's... It's, can I do it? It's, what will it feel like? Mm-hmm. And will I be safe? Right. And interestingly, a lot of people are, you know, of course they're scared for the safety of their baby, but they're also scared for the safety of themselves. There's this moment in birth where you come really close to death and while you're never actually close to death birth is a healthy safe experience and we're never uh wor- you know I, I practice so that I'm not worried about my patients um but you may feel like you're dying and and I have people turn to me all the time in the middle of labor and say what do I do I'm dying. Please save me. Please help me. I'm scared. And all of these things are really normal emotions to work their way through. Uh, Birth is the birth of a baby, but it's also the birth of a completely new human, a new mother, a new parent. Um, And you need to go through this full transformation Um, so it it can be a really emotionally intense experience and that doesn't mean that you're suffering there's a big big difference between coping well with intense contractions call them wildly painful or not um, and then suffering and suffering is entirely different and suffering is when I may intervene to say, you know what, I really think that we need some kind of pain relief here. Um, Because people can get trapped in their suffering Mm -hmm. and not able to make those decisions on their own. Uh, But if you, most people are, are coping really well with labor 
without any kind of pain medication. Um, and those folks are, are going to go through these scary ups and downs as well. But the beauty of having a support person, a doula, a family member, a midwife that you trust and you know has your best interest at heart is that you can completely give up control in those moments and you can rely on them entirely. Um, so if the thing that you're scared of is the pain, if the thing that you're scared of is the not knowing what it's going to be like, if you know that you trust your care provider, then you don't, I mean, it's easy to say don't be scared, mm -hmm. but uh, you don't have to be in charge of that fear. You can let that go. Because you have the security that someone is taking care of you. And listening to everything right. you say and trusting you and trusting your body. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Are there any fears or anxieties that you have as the medical provider being in charge throughout <laughs> this process? The one fears that I have when I'm supporting people yeah, in labor? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> always. Because there's a lot of adrenaline. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the thing is, if... I would assume. If you're not, I'm not I don't a know. little bit... Well, let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. I completely trust birth. I know that it works. Right. I know that my clients have the strength and the ability to give birth, and their bodies can give birth without it being a problem at all. But I'm just always aware. And like I said before, I'm tracking everything that's happening. I'm listening to their baby's heartbeat. I'm listening to the way that they're breathing and sounding and acting. I'm watching their vital signs. I'm always deeply alert. And that doesn't mean that I'm scared or anxious. I'm just paying really close attention so that I don't ever have to get into a situation in which I am scared. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I have a few, three last, two last questions, but one of them is, do you have any specific stories of one of the most remarkable or memorable things that you've witnessed throughout your career and throughout you know all of the births that you've facilitated it's so hard to pick one yeah, i i can imagine <laughs> i i'm awed on a daily basis mm -hmm. by birth and by my patients mm -hmm. um there was there was one birth uh with a a couple where throughout the whole prenatal care the it was a, a heterosexual couple a man and a woman and the man had been really disengaged he would be on his phone during prenatal visits uh, and I really didn't have very high hopes for him as a dad um, but during the birth itself sort of over the course of the of the labor he was getting a little more involved and a little more concerned and and invested and in starting to see how amazing this process was and then in the moment of birth itself 
the moment of um, the baby coming out, I, you know, gently supported the head being born. And as, as this woman was pushing with all of her beautiful might, and I saw his eyes were so big and I said, here, come here, give me your hands. And I had him help me lift the baby up. And, and so he essentially caught his own son and the look on his face, he was sobbing. Tears were pouring down his face and he just couldn't stop saying, oh my God, I love you. Oh my God, I love you. And he, w- and he lifted the baby up to his wife and I mean, it was... Like, I started crying, too. Oh, my God, I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) It was just such a beautiful moment of him really understanding his wife's strength and where his baby was coming from. It was incredible. So that was a really beautiful moment to witness. I've never cried during a podcast. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm really glad I asked that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. Really great answer, too. Um, you've given so much amazing information, but is there anything else that you, any other advice that you have or any other resources you want to recommend? I mean, a lot of them, (laughs) (laughs) but I just, I think preparation Mm -hmm. is the best Uh, the best bet when it comes to having the kind of birth that you're hoping for so whatever that is preparing for that and getting all of the information you can and making sure that you have a a care team that not only wants to give you the birth that you want but also knows how to Um, there's a, a midwife in the city that I love Tanya Wills who always says you know, you may have a favorite sushi restaurant, but if they, you know, and and you may go to that sushi restaurant and ask them for pizza, um, they may really want to give you that pizza, but they don't know how to make it. Mm. So make sure that the care providers that you're choosing know how to give you what you're looking for. I am mm-hmm. like so like mind blown by everything that you've said. So thank you for doing this. This is really, really really interesting and i mean that very deeply i'm so glad that i was able to do this and that you asked me thank you so much for having me yeah and where can people contact you if they want to get in touch with you ask you any questions so my fertility practice is free to care and you can find free to care.com my uh birth practice is central park midwifery um same thing for the website Mm -hmm. and uh you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, all of those things as the midwife is in, all one word. Um, and also my blog is themidwifeisin.com. Amazing. Thank you. And also I wish you the healthiest and happiest rest of your pregnancy and delivery and motherhood. thank you thank you i will take that i'm taking all of the well wishes i can right now and for everyone listening stay tuned for another episode that we definitely will do together on some of the topics i want to talk about with you are abortion insemination uh vaginal health in general Mm. and all of the other 
amazing things that you do as a midwife besides for labor and delivery. I can't wait. Thanks. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>